Jay Sigurd here, Starting Point Podcast. We're talking science, faith, and a whole lot more. Buckle up, because it's go time. Thanks for joining me on today's broadcast. We are headed into part four of a mini-series entitled Bible 101. Part one, I covered some very important background information, including discussing some myths about the Bible and also its origin, how it was written, how was it copied. Part two, I began discussing the first of four major lines of evidence for the inspiration of the Bible. Uh, The first category was internal consistency. Part three, I covered archaeological evidence, and we are going to continue today in part four. But before we get there, just a reminder again, please subscribe to our podcast so you can be alerted when the new ones are coming out. And also, if you could possibly leave a five-star review, again, that helps us greatly to reach more and more people. You've been doing a good job with all with that already, so please continue. So what can you expect today in part four? Well, we're going to discuss prophecy as the third line of evidence that indicates the Bible. It's not just one of many options out there regarding religious books. But the Bible actually is what it claims to be, the inspired Word of God. This one is going to be very interesting. Some of you, depending upon how old you are, might remember a guy named Yogi Berra. He was a major league catcher, mainly for the Yankees, and then he ended up coaching a little bit for the Yankees and then the Mets. Uh, Interesting guy, said a lot of very interesting things. You never knew if the guy was absolutely brilliant or maybe his elevator didn't go all the way up to the top floor. I kind of leaned towards thinking he was brilliant. I just liked a lot of his things. One of my favorites, someone asked him about a certain restaurant, if he liked it or not. He goes, nah, nobody goes there anymore. It's too crowded. It's just things like that that make your head tilt a little bit. But one of his sayings that relates to what we're discussing today, he said, it's hard to make predictions, especially about the future. I thought that's funny. But it's also true. It is hard to make predictions about the future because you don't really know. You might be right, but more than likely you're going to be wrong and maybe way wrong. So we're going to be taking a look at that today as we discuss evidence for the inspiration of the Bible. And I will be relatively brief because you're going to get the point. You know, predictions are made. Did they come true or not? It's pretty straightforward. So we'll just give you a few examples and you'll get the gist of it pretty quickly. Uh, it also reminds me of uh, interaction I've had with a guy at the health club. I think I've mentioned him in past podcasts. Uh, I've known him for probably over maybe 25 years. He's an atheist. And then for a long time, I didn't see him. And then he showed up again at the health club that I'm a member of now. And we've always gotten along really well. And he told me a long time ago, he doesn't want to hear about all this God stuff. So I just backed off and we just kind of have fun but he brings it up pretty consistently. So anytime we talk about it, it's because he brought it up. And he takes shots at me, and he says some pretty funny things, and I laugh. And we just, we're, we're good friends there, even though we don't see each other all the time or do anything together outside of the health club. But recently, he brought up the topic again of, of God. And uh, again, I pointed out I'm not really a religious person, which, again, I believe religion is all about man's idea of God, what do people think about God, whereas um, the Bible is God's idea of God. So we got into that discussion, and I started sharing some evidences. And the whole conversation was only three or four minutes, and he he was the one who brought it up, so he was interested. But along the way, I 
thought of the evidence of prophecy. And I started explaining a little bit how that works to him. And when I finished, he said, oh, yeah, but it all depends upon how you interpret it. And I looked at him and I said, you know what? You are right. It does depend on how you interpret it. So how do you interpret it? And he, he just stared at me like a deer in the headlights. And then he goes, ah, oh, you know, and he changed the subject then. Most likely, he had heard that phrase from someone else. We're talking about the Bible. Well, it's all about interpretation. It depends on how you interpret it, meaning you can't really trust it. There are different interpretations, and people do it different ways, and it doesn't really mean anything. So he heard that from someone. It kind of seemed to make sense, and it worked. He probably shared that with other people, and it kind of ended the conversation. But with me, I had a little bit more to say about it, and I wanted to know, oh, how do you interpret it? What is the proper way? There certainly are different interpretations of the Bible. That doesn't mean they're all right. There is a proper way to interpret it. So what rules of interpretation do you use? Well, he obviously had none, and I didn't press him on it. I just brought up the point that he's making a statement without really anything to back it up. And we're still great friends, and we still enjoy talking at the health club. Another story from years ago, I used to work at the local electric company, did some energy management, and there was a guy there who knew that I was a Christian, and we would have conversations about that. And he was very much a skeptic, but we would at least talk about things. One day, he approached me, and he started talking about Nostradamus, which I'll mention him in just a little bit, a prophet from years gone by. And as he was explaining one of these prophecies, I wanted to cut him off and start sharing all these things, not really in a rude way, but I had so much that I wanted to say even before he finished But I just felt God was saying, no, just let him finish. Let him share what he's going to share. And so I let him talk about this prophecy that he brought up. And when he finished, he said, what do you think about that? And I said, you know what, that's kind of impressive. You know, I could kind of see what Nostradamus said somewhat matches up with something that happened. It's kind of impressive. I said, how would you feel if I knew of a book that didn't just have like a few vague prophecies, it had lots of them, and it had a 100% accuracy rate? He looked at me really puzzled, and I, I said, the Bible. He goes, oh, the Bible. And he rolls his eyes, and he walks off. And I'm thinking, wait a minute. If it really does have a 100% accuracy rate, you should be pretty intrigued. If you truly are impressed by what Nostradamus said, the Bible blows that away, so why wouldn't you be interested in that? Well, he didn't, he didn't want the Bible to be true, and so he had no interest in, in hearing me out, so we didn't get to talk about it. But it's, it's interesting just to see people's reactions when you talk about Christianity. It's often not that there isn't evidence. It's that they don't want it to be true. They're not hoping that it's true, and they're excited that you're sharing all these evidences. And when you share the evidences, you're often taking their defense away, and they've lost interest, and they'll change the subject or walk away. So my friend mentioned Nostradamus. Well, he was a French physician, an astrologer, and a prophet in the early mid-1500s. And he had a number of prophecies, and people still today talk about them, and they'll be on the cover of magazines and say, oh, isn't this amazing how Nostradamus predicted this or that? Well, not really. Here's just one example in the short time that we have. Here's one of his prophecies. Quote, um, actually, before I read it, I want you, as I'm reading it, to figure out what is he prophesying. So listen to the prophecy and figure out what is he predicting. So here it is, quote, When the animal is tamed by man, after great efforts and difficulty begins to speak, the lightning 
so harmful to the rod, will be taken from the earth and suspended in the air, unquote. What's that a prophecy about? You wouldn't know. You couldn't possibly guess. What people say it was a prophecy of was the invention of the radio and light bulb. That is an unbelievable stretch. That is not a prophecy of those things being invented, but people want you to believe like, well, it's, it does talk about you know, lightning and something about begins to speak. It's like, okay, it's so unbelievably vague. That's not impressive to me at all. In fact, Nostradamus pretty much admitted that he purposely made his, his prophecies so vague that they couldn't possibly be interpreted until after an event happened. And then you look back like, oh, now we know what he was saying. That's amazing. <laughs> no, that's not impressive at all. I think that's very deliberate. So we're going to move on just uh, by way of humor here. Here are some statements that were made when people really got it wrong. They're, they're kind of fun. Now, these examples are not from prophets. These people weren't claiming to be speaking from God and predicting the future. They were just sharing what they expected to have happen. This is what they were thinking would be the case. So regarding the automobile, here was a prediction, quote, that the automobile has practically reached the limit of its development is suggested by the fact that during the past year, no improvements of a radical nature have been introduced, unquote. So what were they saying? They're saying, you know what, we've been looking at the development of the car over the past year, and you, we haven't really seen any significant changes at all. We think we're pretty much done with cars. You won't see any major changes from this point on out. Well, who said that and when did they say it? That came from Scientific American in 1909. <laughs> um, do you think any changes have happened to the automobile since 1909? Yeah, unbelievably so, but that's what they thought at the time. No, we're, we're pretty much done. It's reached its limits. <laughs> then there was a prediction about television. Here's a prediction. Quote, television won't be able to hold on to any market it captures after the first six months. People will soon get tired of staring at a plywood box every night, unquote. Well, who in the world said that? How about 20th Century Fox back in 1946? Uh, are people interest, still interested in television today? Yeah, many are addicted to it. They watch hours and hours and hours, so they were terribly wrong about that. Here's a prediction about computers. Quote, I think there is a world market for maybe five computers, unquote. Who said that? How about IBM president back in 1943? Are there more than five computers around the world today? Yeah, I think we're up to like 12 or 14, is it now? No, how about 2 billion? There's about 2 billion computers around the globe today, but the IBM president said, I, you know, we're probably only going to need five of these things. Well, terribly wrong. And one last one, this is fun. Talking about inventions, quote, everything that can be invented has been invented. Who said that, unquote? <laughs> Who said that? How about the commissioner of the U.S. Office of Patents back in 1899? That is a long time ago. And they said, we're done inventing things. We can't think of anything else. Has anything been invented since 1899? Yeah, probably most things that have been invented have come after that point in time. So they were grossly in error. Well, let's get to some actual false prophecies of people who were claiming to speak from God, saying these things are true, God told us it. 
going to start looking at the Jehovah's Witnesses. I'm not trying to pick on Jehovah's Witnesses. I think people in that organization are largely very sincere. I think they're very deceived. Uh, We'll talk about Mormons as well in just a second here. But here's a prediction from within Jehovah's Witnesses. This is in 1899 again. 1899. Quote, The battle of the great day of God Almighty, Revelation 16, 14, which will end in A.D. 1914 with the complete overthrow of Earth's present rulership is already commenced, unquote. So in 1899, they said in 1914, basically the end of the world is coming, the Earth's rulership you know, will be overthrown, and it, that's already started, they said, in 1899, so what, what, 15 years earlier. Well, guess what? 1914 came and went, and it never happened. They were totally wrong. Then in 1918, they made this prophecy, quote, Therefore, we may confidently expect that 1925 will mark the return of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the faithful prophets of old, particularly those named by the apostle in Hebrews 11, to the condition of human perfection, unquote. So in 1918, they said that in 1925, what is that, seven years later, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and other prophets from the Old Testament would come back to life on earth here and they would be perfect humans. Well, 1925 came and went. It didn't happen. They were wrong. So in 1925, they said before they realized this was false, they said, we, you know, we're expecting this. We're expecting these prophets to come back, but, you know, it may or may not happen. So this is almost seven years later when they're in the year that they predicted and it hasn't happened yet, they start to soften. Like, well, you know, we're expecting it, but it, it may or may not happen. Wait a minute, you prophesied it would happen. Why are you now changing the prophecy to say that it might happen, which is not even a prophecy if you say it might happen, might not. Well, you can't be wrong then because it may or may not happen. Well, then a little bit later in the same year, 1925, that they originally predicted, they said Satan is trying to deceive people into thinking that it will be 1925. Yeah, because that's what you said. You said it would be 1925, and now you're saying, oh, it wasn't us. It was Satan is deluding these people to claim that it's 1925. It doesn't have to be that year, and it certainly wasn't. Now, just one example from uh, Mormons. This is in 1871, stated by Brigham Young. He was the second president of the Mormon Church. He said, quote, So it is with regard to the inhabitants of the sun. Do you think it is inhabited? I rather think so. Do you think there is any life there? No question of it, unquote. 1871, the second president of the Mormon church said the sun is inhabited. Um, as far as I know, there aren't any inhabitants there. I don't see how that would be possible. He was terribly wrong. I heard of someone who was trying to explore the sun to see if there was any life there, and someone else says, you can't do that. You're going to burn up before you even get there. He says, I'm going to go at night. It'll be okay. <laughs> um, yeah, that, that didn't happen. So again, this is just one example of a false prophecy, and there are many, many false prophecies from Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, and others. How many false prophecies does it take to be a false prophet? You only have to do one, and there are many that we could go through. So let's contrast that to the general prophetic nature that we see in the Bible. There are actually over eight thousand passages in the Bible that are prophetic in nature, meaning predicting the future. 
It makes over 1,800 predictions covering over 700 topics. That means 27% of the Bible is prophetic in nature. You won't find that in any other book on the planet. Why? Because it's too easy to be wrong. If you're not really speaking from God, most of the time you will be wrong. Most of the time, probably way wrong. Sometimes you'll be kind of close. A few times you might be dead on. And if you want to trumpet those, fine. But what about all the other ones you're wrong about? And those are the ones that get hidden. And talking about the necessity of prophecy, you think about these Old Testament prophets. You know, God was speaking to them and through them and wanting them to convey messages to everyone else. I think if I was one of those prophets, I'd be pretty nervous thinking, God, I think you're telling me this message, but if I'm getting it wrong or it wasn't from you and I say this, guess what? I'm going to be put to death because that was the biblical mandate for false prophets. In Deuteronomy chapter 18 in the Old Testament, that was the test. If someone claims to be speaking from God and what they say doesn't come true, they're to be put to death. God takes that pretty seriously. I don't like it today when someone claims to speak for me and they say something, and I'm thinking, I didn't say, I never said that. Now, the person may have misunderstood me, or maybe they're actually lying. You, no one likes it when someone claims to speak for you, and it puts you in a bad light. Well, imagine God. God doesn't like that either, and he had pretty strict rules. If someone claims to be speaking for him, and what they say doesn't come true, that's not from him. They would be put to death. So <laughs> you, you got to be pretty bold to be a prophet in the Old Testament, and I think the actual real prophets had to have just tremendous faith in God, saying, God, i gotta, I got to trust you on this one. I don't really want to die, but I am trusting you. So it's pretty impressive. Now, if, if I predicted the exact score of the first game for the Green Bay Packers in the next season. How would you feel about that? And all of a sudden the game ends and like, wow, Jay was right about the, he got this score exact. Like that's pretty interesting, pretty impressive. He must maybe really study football or whatever. And maybe that's the case, but you would know I ultimately, I got lucky. I might have some intelligence behind it, but there's no way I could have known, but it's kind of cool that I, that I guessed it at a time and it actually was right. That's as far as you would need to go with that. But what if I predicted the final score of every NFL game next season? Then you would conclude two things. Number one, you would conclude those games are rigged. The only way someone could know what the score was going to be for every single game is if they were determined ahead of time. And then secondly, you would conclude that I was privy to those outcomes ahead of time. Someone told me what they're going to be. That's how I would know. That's the only thing that makes sense. There is no way I could just, by chance, guess the score of every single game and get them all right. There's no way. You wouldn't believe that was right. You'd think something's going on. There's something more to this. And you would be right to conclude that. So let's take a look at a few examples of prophecy in the Old Testament. Again, we're not going to have a whole lot of time to go through many of these, but the main one I want to focus on has to do with a city called Tyre, T-Y-R-E. You find it in the book of Ezekiel. It's in chapter 26 in the Old Testament. This is written in, let's say, the late 500s B.C., so roughly 600 years before Jesus Christ shows up. That's when Ezekiel is writing, and he's making prophecies about the city of Tyre. Now, 
Tyre is a city in Lebanon. So if you find Israel on a map, map picture that. Uh, it's right just to the north of there in Lebanon, and it's right on the Mediterranean coast. So that's the city we're talking about, and it's one of the most ancient, prosperous cities in history. Okay, so what did Ezekiel prophesy about this city? Now again, when we're dealing with Bible prophecy, we're not talking about just vague statements that can be misunderstood so easily, like, you know, next year it's going to be a little, little warmer out than normal. Well, what does a little mean? And I've got pretty much a 50-50 chance of being right on that, so that's not impressive at all. That's not what we're discussing with Bible prophecy. The Bible is generally very specific, and often it's even kind of bizarre. Like, why would you even say that? It it doesn't even make sense. That's not going to happen. It's not even likely to happen. But that's what makes it impressive. And here is the prophecy of the city of Tyre. Ezekiel specifically names King Nebuchadnezzar, of Babylon. He would come in and attack the city of Tyre from the north. Guess what happened in history? King Nebuchadnezzar came and attacked the city of Tyre from the north. The Bible got that right. Ezekiel also says that many nations would actually come and attack the city of Tyre. And many nations did come and attack the city of Tyre. The ones that I know of, about eight of them. And then it was also prophesied, something that's bizarre, is that the dust and the rubble from the city would be scraped flat like the top of a rock and it would take all the timbers and stones and dust and all that and be thrown into the water, into the sea. Now that's that's weird. It's crazy. Okay, go in and attack the people. Torture some people, kill some people, burn some buildings, knock some things over and be done. Why would you take all the time and effort to, to knock everything down and scrape it flat like a rock and throw it all into the Mediterranean Sea. It doesn't make any sense. Guess what happened in history? It was all scraped flat like the top of a rock and thrown into the sea. But why? Because Alexander the Great came and he wanted to attack the inhabitants of the city of Tyre. But many had escaped to a nearby island. But he couldn't build large enough ships to float an army over there. So he took all the rubble from the city that had been knocked over and he scraped it flat, threw it into the sea, and he built a causeway or a bridge to march his army over there and attack the people who were on that island. Pretty amazing. The Bible got that exactly right, even though it was bizarre. And it was prophesied that the city would never be reestablished and rebuilt. And to this day, the city has never been rebuilt, even though it's in a perfect place right on the coast to be rebuilt. Now, what's interesting is that island that some of the people fled to, it's not an island anymore. If you look at Google Earth, it's connected to the mainland because of the bridge that was built. It's all filled in with sediments, so it's not really even an island anymore. And someone decided to call that little nub that sticks out Tyre. So you'll see the the label there, but it's not the same city. It's not even in the same location, and it wasn't rebuilt. They're just reusing the name. It's never been rebuilt, which makes it kind of interesting. If you are an atheist today and you want to disprove the Bible, pretty simple. Go over there to the Mediterranean coast, rebuild the city of Tyre where it was originally existing. You, You disprove the Bible. It's a false prophecy. Now, if someone tried to do that, what would happen? I don't think God would allow that. I think they'd run into all sorts of problems. They would never complete it because God prophesied it won't be rebuilt, and it hasn't been, and it never will be because God 
knows what he's talking about, says what he means, and he means what he says. Very quickly, I don't have the time for the details on this one. This is fascinating. Daniel, another prophet in the Old Testament, you've heard of probably Daniel and the lion's den and all that. That's the Daniel we're talking about. He was taken into captivity in Babylon. Um, so he's prophesying to the king of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel predicts the succession of nations in the future, which is unbelievable. Can you imagine today predicting the succession of world powers from here on out? Like Today, the U.S. is still pretty much the dominant world power, although we are headed south pretty fast. But can you imagine someone saying, yeah, okay, U.S. is in charge now, but China's going to take over next. Then China will fall to Russia, and then Russia will fall to Iran and Iraq. I mean, you can't know that. You might guess or something like that, but that would be pretty impressive if that actually came true. Well, that's what Daniel did. He says, hey, King Nebuchadnezzar, King of Babylon here, he had, he had Daniel's image. You look into it sometime, the image of Daniel, head of gold and all that's fascinating. He said, you, you're the head of gold, the top dog here. You're in charge here. But you know what? Babylon's going to fall to the Medo-Persians. Medo-Persians fall to the Greeks. Greeks will fall to the Romans. Romans won't fall to anyone. They're going to kind of self-destruct, but then there will be a revived Roman Empire in the last days and end times. Guess what happened in history? Babylon fell to the Medo-Persians. Medo-Persians fell to the Greeks. Greeks fell to the Romans. Romans, they didn't fall to anyone, any outside forces. They pretty much self-destructed, but it's being rebuilt. We're starting to see the revival of the Roman Empire, the EU, and all that. It's fascinating. That's what the Bible predicted. That's what we're seeing. This is so powerful, a lot of skeptics try to say, oh, all that was written after those things happened, and they made it look like it was a prediction. Well, you got the Dead Sea Scrolls absolutely proven. No, this was written well before that ever occurred in history. Daniel predicted that because God told him it was a prophecy. I want to end with this podcast talking about a different category of prophecy. We call them Messianic prophecies. Messianic, the Messiah. Um, So here's the deal. God creates everything. It's perfect. Adam and Eve, they rebel against God. They separate themselves from God. And they bring death and a curse into God's perfect creation. God has a plan. He's going to solve everything. He's going to send his own son to die on a cross to pay for the sins of the world. The entire Old Testament is God playing out that plan. He's going to send his son as the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Uh, The Jews in the Old Testament were all about the coming Messiah. They were looking for him. And the Old Testament gives prophecies about who this Messiah is going to be. So you got to look for someone, and here's who to look for. Jesus, when he showed up about 2,000 years ago, fulfilled about 300 prophecies, meaning all the prophecies that were made of him, not just some, all of them, and there were about 300 of those. Now, why why so many? Well, let's say the Old Testament said the Messiah is coming, he's going to be male, and he's going to be at least six foot tall. Do you have any idea how many people in history could claim to be the Messiah, including myself, because I'm male and about 6'3", so I would qualify. So that would not be helpful prophecies. But if there were 300 of them, there's no way someone's going to force that to happen or just fulfill them by accident. God protects it so well, so when the Messiah comes, we will know who he is, and Jesus fulfilled those prophecies. Now, some of those prophecies, people say, well, they were in his control, and Jesus could just force them to happen to make it look like he's really the Messiah. 
That's true for some of them. The Bible predicted that Jesus, or the Messiah, would be silent before his accusers when he's on trial. Jesus was silent before his accusers. Now, Jesus could have said, oh, I know all the Old Testament scripture. This Messiah guy, he's going to be quiet when they're accusing him. So, I, boy, I'd like to go off right now, but I better be quiet or I won't fulfill that prophecy. So he just decided to not say anything. Yeah, he could have forced a few of those, but a lot of them were totally out of his control. Could he control the city he was born in, who his parents were? The fact that when he was born, King Herod would be, would be killing other children? Could he decide the form of his own death through crucifixion, which when the prophecy was made, crucifixion hadn't even been invented yet? No, he, he couldn't have forced those things at all. So what are the chances that Jesus, who was here 2,000 years ago, he's not really the Messiah. He just kind of coincidentally fulfilled these prophecies, but he's not really the Son of God and all that. It's just coincidence. All right. Let's just take a look at the probability that Jesus fulfilled 48 major details of the 300. Of the 300, some are more minor things. We're taking a look at 48 of the major details of these prophecies from the Old Testament. What are the chances? Jesus is not the Messiah, just kind of a coincidence. All right, you can do the calculations on this. It's pretty straightforward. The chances that Jesus fulfilled 48 of these major details is just one chance in 10 raised to the 157th power. What's that? That's one chance in a one followed by 157 zeros. Want me to spell it out? This is what it is. It's less than one chance in a thousand trillion trillion, trillion 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 trillion trillion. You want to go with those odds? I wouldn't. To me, that screams proof that Jesus must have been the Messiah. It also proves one other thing, that those prophets must have been speaking from God because they couldn't make up prophecies and have them be fulfilled by accident later. It's evidence that God told them what to write. They wrote it down. It was copied accurately. And Jesus actually is that Messiah that he claimed to be. Now, this number that I told you, a thousand trillion, 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 on and on and on, it's so big, you can't really wrap your brain around it. So let me give you an analogy that should help. A Rubik's Cube. Most of you have probably played with a Rubik's Cube. The rest of you who deny it are probably lying. Um, everyone's probably messed with one. A Rubik's Cube has a lot of different combinations, but only one is correct. In fact, it has 10 million trillion combinations, and only one is correct. So if someone blindfolded you and they handed you a random cube and you start spinning it randomly... You have one chance in 10 million trillion of getting that right. No sane person says, yep, I could do it. Give me that cube. They realize, yeah, it's not going to happen. All right, let's compare solving the Rubik's Cube by accident to the big number that I gave you, a one with 157 zeros after it. It'd be like me handing you the cube, putting the blindfold on. You start spinning it randomly and you solve the cube eight times in a row, getting it right every single time time. Is that ever going to happen? No, not even close. And that's just 48 of these prophecies. So again, if you want to believe Jesus isn't the Messiah, your faith is stronger than mine. And it's kind of an unreasonable faith because it goes against the evidence rather than with and supportive of the evidence. I, I think it's clear as day to me that Jesus is who he claimed to be. He's the Messiah, the Son of God, and he fulfilled all those prophecies. Prophecy is very powerful. Prophecy is arguably 
the most powerful line of evidence for the inspiration of Scripture. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10 says this, quote, I am God, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure, unquote. God is a God of prophecy. He knows everything. He gives us predictions and then fulfills them to show that his message is really from him. That's one reason we know the Bible isn't just another religious book that someone made up. This is from him. He gives us ways of testing it. You will not find that substantiation in other religious books out there. But God does it because it's from God, and we would expect something like that. So, We need to wrap up for now. Again, the Bible makes some pretty serious and significant claims for itself that it's the inspired Word of God, but we're not expected to take that on blind faith. There's so much evidence. We've looked at three lines so far of evidence. We're going to look at one more. And again, I usually say there is plenty of evidence for those who are open to the Bible being the inspired Word of God. But if you're a hardened skeptic, then no amount of evidence is going to even phase you because it's not what you want. So, And if you're listening, that's great. But realize there's so much evidence, and it's all around us. So what's next? Well, it's going to be Bible 101, Part 5. We're going to look at evidence for inspiration based on scientific accuracy. This is one of my favorites, and again, it goes with my background in physics and engineering and computer programming and all that. It's going to be fascinating. You don't want to miss that one. Again, please subscribe, leave a five-star review if you can, and tell others about it. You're going to want them to hear not only today's podcast, but next week's as well with the scientific accuracy of the Bible. I think you're going to be very surprised and very encouraged by the strength in the line of evidence from scientific accuracy. So thanks for joining us. We will catch you next time. Well, thanks for listening to this episode of the Starting Point Podcast. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, tell a friend, and please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. That's the number one way to help us reach more and more people with these important and inspiring messages. To learn more about myself, Jay Siegert, and the Starting Point Project, please visit us at thestartingpointproject.com. We'll catch you next time.